Go ahead and grab a Bible. We're going to be in Jonah 3, of all places, to talk about politics and religion. Jonah chapter 3. That's in your Old Testament, uh, one of those obscure books. You have Daniel, you have Hosea, Obadiah is in there. Right after Obadiah is, is Jonah. So you can make your way there. Jonah 3, and we'll get to that in a minute. Last week of politics and religion. And honestly, uh, I'm excited about it. Because I think this will be a perfect addendum, if you will, to everything we've covered. My, my hope for you, dear church, and anyone listening, even online, is that during this series, that you would catch a glimpse of what a truly biblical worldview looks like. What does it truly mean to, to have a worldview, an outlook, where you see everything through the lens of Scripture, everything through the lens the way God sees it, and not how the pundits on TV see it. And given this... Given the events of this past week regarding the election, uh, if you look very carefully, you could and you can still peer behind all of the rhetoric, okay, all of the rhetoric, and you can see where various worldviews are at war with each other. It's very clear that in this nation, there are a lot of differing ideas. Some of those ideas are great. Some of them are horrendous. But I'm hoping that you will be able to at least see behind all of that what those worldviews are. And so that said, however, not once was I ever tempted to talk about partisan politics for two reasons, really. One, partisan politics really have no place in the pulpit, mostly because of number two, the, the kingdom of God, God's politics in his kingdom has much to say to all human partisans. Okay? So ultimately, we serve the lamb, not the elephant or the donkey. Okay, so that, that's our worldview. That's our worldview. Because both sides of the aisle have problems. Okay? But our worldview is rooted in Scripture. And I have sought to show you several things in this series, several things that really tie together uh, to form really this biblical picture, as this graph graphic demonstrates. One, what we've covered and established so far, the word of God is what we look to for everything in life. We look to it for how we should manage our family. We look to it for how we should go about being godly people who want to seek first the kingdom of God. So we also look to it to figure out how we should go about politics and even the political process at all levels, be it local or state or even federal level. Um, so the Bible is, in fact, our standard, and that's not just a cute axiom. We put on a mug and sip our coffee. We, we believe it, and we gladly deploy it in all areas of our life. That's how it should be. Two, since everything is covenantal, nothing, nothing is neutral. Since everything stems from God's sovereignty, God's sovereign hand, everything in this world, everything is either in line with God or it is out of step with God. There's no gray area. There's no parking lot where you can just kind of sit and wait. You are either with Christ or you are against Christ. There's no middle option, no third option. It's just A or B. No all of the above. No none above. None of the above. It's either with Jesus or against Jesus. And so there's no neutral particle or millisecond in God's world. Neutral space or time anywhere on this planet uh, simply cannot be found. All of it belongs to Christ. As Abraham, the Dutch uh, statesman, he said, um, there's not a square inch of this world 
that Jesus Christ doesn't cry out, mine. It all belongs to him. Third, Jesus is Messiah the Prince. He is Messiah the Prince. And as Revelation eleven fifteen says, the kingdom, listen carefully, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. We are not scurrying about waiting for Christ to bring a kingdom. We are laboring inside of a kingdom that he has already released in the world. So through his death and resurrection, we now have citizenship. We are not standing in line waiting to get it. Number four, the law of God is the perfect standard for all things pertaining to righteousness and justice. The foundation of God's throne, scripture says, indeed is righteousness and justice. And as saved people, as people with regenerated hearts full of the Holy Spirit, we look to the law of God in three different ways. One, it's a mirror to show us what we are like in light of God's perfect righteousness. It is also a a guide to show us what good works are, to show us what loving neighbor actually truly looks like. And thirdly, um, the law of God is a sword which restrains evil in society. Civil magistrates are told in scripture to govern according to the word of God. So God's law is better than man's made self-law. Theonomy is better than autonomy. Autonomy leads to tyranny. Autonomy, self-law, leads to um, confusion. It leads to skepticism. And ultimately, it leads to incoherency. So we love God's law. Psalm 19.7 says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So in other words, don't, don't scorn the law of God, embrace it, live within the confines of it, cling to it. Fifth thing we've tried to show here, civil government is God's institution. It's God's institution. Romans 13 says that civil government, the governing authorities are God's idea. He made it a separate sphere, which has separate authority and jurisdiction. It's distinguishable between the state and the church, the family, and individual self. There is a reason for that, but that's how God has set it up. And as I've shown both from the scriptures and with this graphic, every, every single person, every family, every church, and every king, and every nation is told to pay homage to Christ the King by obeying his law word. No one is in a position to where they can circumvent the process. All of us fall underneath this, what we call covenantal authority, God's world. Sixth, I showed you last week from all over scripture that we must obey God first. We must obey God first. There is a time for us There's a time and a place for us to reject tyranny, but in rejecting tyranny, we must not become tyrants ourselves. We don't disobey the law of God in order to get after those who are disobeying the law of God. That would be hypocrisy. We have a God-given right and responsibility to implore, indeed demand, that civil magistrates on all levels live up to their high calling of obeying King Jesus. Which means in the coming months, you better be on the horn with your representatives and demanding that abortion be abolished. Today, I want to ask the question, now what do we do? What do we do? I mean, we've laid the foundation. What are we we even supposed to be doing? 
because in another four years, guess what? It's coming again. Well, another two years, but not as much, right? It's, 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 what do we do? What's the way forward? Yes, the Bible's our standard. Yes, there's no neutrality. Yes, Christ is on his throne, right? And that isn't just a cute saying to alleviate your politically depressed mind. Yes, the law of God is good. I get that. Yes, we're, we're to obey civil leaders unless they refuse to obey Christ and then things change a little bit. Okay, I get that. Now what? Like, what's next? Here's where we're going to go today. God demonstrates his control over history by his victory in history through his assembled saints, the church. God demonstrates his control over history by his victory in history through his assembled saints, the church. No pressure. But God's ability to save, God's ability to save is greater than man's ability to sin. Okay? Get that through your mind. God's ability to save is far greater than man's ability to sin and rebel against him. So let's go ahead and read Jonah 3. Jonah chapter 3, just a few verses. Jonah 3, pick it up in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. What is he going to do? What is he going to do? He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And, as, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This series has no doubt been challenging at times, but I think it's very, very important to grasp. My hope is that you are challenged to, to the point of adopting a truly biblical worldview and applying said worldview to your entire life, to how you go about everything. And one of the important pieces to developing this worldview was the five-point model that I explained a few weeks ago. Understanding covenant is crucial. When you understand how God has set up his world, it changes things. And you get this right, you're well on your way. You can listen to the pundits on television and you can say, that's not right. That, that idea isn't right. That philosophy, that's not right. It doesn't jive with scripture. It doesn't jive with, with God's world. 
So transcendence, God's sovereignty, right? Hierarchy, God has a system of order in his world. Ethics, the ethics of his world, his law, the, the oaths, or you could say even the sanctions. What does God do in history to nations and peoples as they obey him or disobey him? Is there blessing or cursing? And the fifth one is succession. So this structure is found all over the pages of scripture because it is how God has designed his world to function underneath his authority. God is the transcendent sovereign one. He made man under his authority to be fruitful and multiply, to take dominion in the world. Man in Christ is restored to that position and that calling. Sin entered in, right? But in Christ, we are restored. We are restored in this hierarchy Um, taking dominion over the world, over the works of of our hands, underneath God's authority. And God gave his law as an ethical standard for everyone. When men are brought into Christ's blood, bought by his blood, that was this covenant relationship, right? This new covenant I give you, the newer covenant, he says. Man is either going to be a covenant breaker or covenant keeper. When you are in Christ... You are either going to cling to Christ or waver. And there's going to be a challenge there for you. Which means God will will bring judgment in history. Which looks like either blessing or cursing. Right? I mean, you do realize that the stuff that's going on, the chaos that is happening in our nation, that is God's divine judgment. It's, It's not blessing. Because the family is, is being sacrificed altogether. If we can't kill the child in the womb, we, sure, we surely will, will indoctrinate them somehow into secular humanism. And it will surely get them that way. And the family is broken apart and destroyed. Where fathers aren't being fathers. And mothers who, who don't have a father are struggling. It's a mess. So God will bring judgment, he will bring cursing, he will bring blessing, and it all depends on really how faithful his people will be to him. And this last part, this succession, is what I want to talk about today. It's the issue of inheritance. The issue of inheritance. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to talk today about the inheritance the way you probably think. Usually when you hear the word inheritance, you think you know, assets and money that I receive from someone's will who just passed away. That's generally how we think of in terms of inheritance, and that's not wrong. It's just not the biblical way to think about it. I'm not talking about that type of inheritance. The inheritance I'm talking about has to do with the issue of time or history. Now, maybe... You are not like me, and I'm the weirdo. And I don't sit and think about a philosophy of time. History. Like, because what I just said is in the past. And what I just said about what I just said about being in the past is in the past. You ever stopped and thought about that? It's, it's kind of weird. Philosophy of time. How does time play out? That's really the issue. So we're talking about the, the way forward, how the future becomes the past. I love the Back to the Future movies. They're classic. But I don't understand them. Right? I just know that the flux capacitor is needed to get to, you know. But, but it's, it's really interesting. I love, I love time travel shows. It just... 
bends your mind in ways that like, Interstellar, did you ever see that movie? Just bends your mind in ways. Like he goes out into space and comes back and his daughter's older than he is. I don't understand that. And maybe you don't care and you wish me, I would just keep going. <laughs> I want you to care. But we're talking about the issue of history. Is, is time or history, is it merely a, a product of chance? Is it, is it an impersonal force? Or, or is God even sovereign over time and how time plays out in his world? Humanists love to teach our college students about history, but they do it in a way that's very mystic. It's a mystic way. History, you know, just sort of happens. There's not much you can do about it. After all, history just, history just repeats itself. Maybe you've heard that phrase, right? Is that true? Does history literally repeat itself? Are we going to be reincarnated? Those are questions people ask. Or is there something else going on with as time plays out? History, we're talking about his control over history. History is guided by the sovereign hand of God. In the ancient Near East, only Judaism, and by extension Christianity, had an understanding and a view of time that said it was linear. Time is linear, not circular, okay? Track with me, because I'm going to make you think. All of the other ancient religions believed in a circular view of history. It was just repeating itself, right? So, and it kind of makes sense, because the stars in the sky, yeah, they change depending on the months, but generally we see them the same every time. Brace yourselves, Michigan, winter is coming. (laughs) Every year, winter comes, and every year, well, we all get miserable. We don't see the sun for half the year. You know, we have issues. but, but But if winter comes every year, and every day the sun's up and down, then must be time and history circular too. That's how they reasoned. Of course, the Bible says that time is linear. It's moving in a straight line. Time is moving from creation, the beginning of time, all the way through to the end of time when God judges the final, in the final judgment. So creation and time really go together. For when God made all things, he created all things. He created time to exist as we know it. He set history in motion to accomplish his divine will. You ever asked the question, why did, why did God allow Adam and Eve to sin in the garden? I'll tell you why. Because Christ needed to come and be crucified. Because that was the plan. God didn't say, oh man, they, they ate. I told them not to eat that. Now what are we going to do? I don't know. Let's figure it out. All right. Like he wasn't shocked by that. It was part of his plan. So it's the tension of God ordains all of your free decisions. Yeah, go ahead. Think about that. God ordains all of your free decisions. We are, we don't know anything. <laughs> so he set history in motion to accomplish his divine will. Interestingly enough, time is covenantal. Time is a part of God's covenantal world it is what he has established. In other words, time, time is not outside of God's sovereign control. There's never a moment in heaven, in the throne room, when the father looks at his watch and says, I don't know what to do. We're running out of time. God is the master of time, which means history is personal. It's not impersonal. History is 
guided by God and God is in control of all of it. And so time is, time is covenantal because God made man in history to rule as God's representatives on earth. So that means your life actually matters, right? You have purpose. You have something you're supposed to achieve, something you're supposed to do. Time is an issue of ethics because God gave us his ethical pattern for us to work it out in history. Okay, we just celebrated the 499th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. It took us 1,600 years to get the gospel right. So we have a lot of time to get how to apply it. So God, of course, judges in history. As history unfolds, God is the judge, not just at the end of time, right? Creation judgment. He's not just the judge at the end of time. He's in time too. God's not just so sovereign over time. He's sovereign in time. He doesn't stop being sovereign because suddenly he sent his son 2,000 years ago in history to do something. But as history unfolds, he's the judge. And the last reason, really, that time is what we call covenantal. It's inside of God's sovereign control. It's covenantal because God grants the inheritance of eternal life to his people while he punishes covenant breakers for eternity. So the problem, of course, is that because of sin in the world, time is cursed. Time is cursed. None of you will live in this state forever, right? Like, the stats are in, 10 out of 10 people die annually. That, that's the reality. We work, we're, you can't escape it. Only one man escaped it. And when history wraps up, that one man will raise all men. But until then, the body breaks down, we get sick, and eventually we die. Sorry if you wanted more encouragement this morning. Does that mean, though, does that mean that time is an enemy? Should we think of time as an enemy? No. Paul says in Ephesians 5.16 that we are to redeem the time. You ever told your kid that? Right? Don't waste time. Redeem your time. What is redeem? What does that even mean? What is redeem? What is, how do we redeem something like time? To redeem something is to buy it back, right? Buy something back that was either lost or stolen from you. So was time taken or lost? The answer is yes. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God cursed man and told him that he would die, right? You remember in Genesis 3? You will surely die. Ugh. You mean I'm not going to live forever. Time was lost. Adam and Eve lost time. So had Adam and Eve obeyed God and partaken of the tree of life in the garden, they would have lived forever in harmony with God. But they didn't. They, they disobeyed, which means time was now lost. They would eventually die. And yet Paul says that we can redeem the time. How do you redeem, how do you redeem the time? Do you know who the tree of life is you can give the Sunday school answer Jesus um, in the book of Revelation he is the tree of life so when you partake of the tree of life in history you have now been deposited into a life of eternity because everybody lives forever right I mean in, as far as the soul is concerned right renewed body at the end either heaven hell that's just kind of that's how time plays out for eternity but in history how do you redeem the time? And the answer is very simple, by a life of obedience to Christ. It's that simple. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just give you a ticket to heaven. He gave you time. You've never thought about that, have you? 
He gave you time. In other words, we were saved from the curse of God's law for failing to obey it. Jesus obeyed it for us, flipped it on its head, and now we can experience the blessings of God's law, God's covenant. And one of those blessings is economic productivity in history. We can make stuff and enjoy it. And we can put our feet up or we can go play golf, hallelujah, right? And we can enjoy God's world because we have time. When you, were a, when you became a Christian, when you repented and trusted Christ, you were resurrected covenantally. Meaning you were a covenant breaker. You were in your sins, dead in your sins. But, but in Christ now, he brought you into sonship, his status. You are his child now. You are now a covenant keeper, which means you now have the ability to buy back time. When we obey the covenant, the scriptures say that tangible blessings come. Which means, listen carefully, that God's sovereign control over history is made manifest publicly through the righteous behavior of God's blood-bought people. Let me say it again. This is God's sovereign control of history is, is displayed. It's made manifest publicly. People can see it through the righteous behavior of God's blood-bought people. He demonstrates his control in history. Jonah chapter 3 is an exceptional illustration of this principle. What was God going to do to Nineveh? Level it, right? Just done. Was that going to happen at the end of time or in history? In history, right? All of, those, all of the people there of Nineveh, they were covenant-breaking sinners. They hated God. They loved violence. So God was going to judge them. He was going to destroy them. But God tell, told Noah, uh, Jonah, Noah's dead at that point. God told Jonah to call out against Nineveh, right? And he did it back in chapter 1 as well. But Jonah disobeyed, so God threw, you know, he ended up in the sea and was swallowed by a fish. Now, as a side note, I believe that Jonah died and was raised back to life. We don't have time to cover that here. If you want to ask me about that later, please. I would love to talk to you about it. But for now, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, right? Go to Nineveh, preach. Mm, Nah, I'm going to go in the opposite direction. Okay, you're done. Jonah's back on shore. Okay, I'll do this. That was awful. (laughs) So Jonah goes, he preaches to the people, they repent, and the king repents, right? We'll talk about that in a minute, but the city is spared, right? The city is spared. So note the principle. History was going to be shut off for these people. It was going to be closed, closed. It was done. God was going to end it for them because of their sin against him. They would have no more time, okay? Think about from their perspective. They're all going to die in judgment, but... So time was going to end for them. But Jonah, who's, who's God's representative, he preaches to them, and they, re, they turn in faith. They, they repent. That's what the text says. In other words, they become covenant keepers. They bought back some time. Nineveh didn't die that day. They had more time. So that's the principle that I'm illustrating. Time isn't, time isn't just linear. It's progressive in the sense that it, it unfolds. There's a reason Jesus didn't come five minutes after Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden. He could have just done that, right? Hey, I'm here. Let's fix this. It took several thousands of years for that to unhold. So history isn't just linear. It progresses. 
There are ups, there are downs, but God is sovereign even inside of it. So God uses his people in history to demonstrate his sovereign will. Okay? That's the principle. God uses his church, his people, to demonstrate his sovereign will. And what does God want us to do? What does God want us to do? He wants us to preach the gospel so the world can be saved. So God demonstrates his control over history by his victory in history through his assembled saints, the church. That's us. That's the people of God. So when God's people are faithful to him, the Bible teaches that blessings come to the people of God. They grow more richer and more influential. I don't just mean that in purely monetary terms. Just generally speaking. That is the blessings of the covenant. Isaiah 65, go read it later, talks about people living longer as they obey God's covenant. That's not about eternity. For people in Isaiah's prophecy were still dying. He's talking about history. As the gospel pervades all areas of life and impacts all nations, because they're going to be discipled per Jesus' instructions, right? In Matthew 28, it changes how things play out. We don't just stand in line, get our ticket punched, and all right, I'm ready, I got my bags packed. No, we labor, we redeem the time, we buy it back, and we labor for his kingdom. So let me break this down very simply. The reason you are seeing such decay in our society is because the amount of people who are obeying Christ is dwindling. Okay? Like, not rocket science, right? There is a directly proportionate ratio between the amount of righteous people and the visible righteousness in a society. When men refuse to bend the knee to Christ, they will experience God's judgment. And that's what's going on right now in our nation. So the question then becomes, if God demonstrates his control over history by his victories in history, your question you should ask is, well, where is the victory then? You're talking about being victorious. Where is it? Now, you may be tempted to think that the church will be defeated in history. It seems to me that for the average Christian, the worse things get, the better it is. Some, some of you have been taught to think that the closer we get to another world war, in a sense, that's good because then Christ will hurry up and return. I, I know that's morbid, but there are writers, there are pastors who teach this nonsense And what I'm saying is the complete opposite. When God's people recover a thorough understanding of the law and an application of the law and the gospel, when when God's people repent of their sins, when God's people gather in biblical churches, when God's people hear the word of God unashamedly preached and taught, when God's people partake of the Lord's Supper and we cry out to God for deliverance and revival, God is pleased to act. You asked where the victory of the gospel is in history. Let me show you the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was murdered on the cross, the revolution began. When our king rose from the dead, the victory was accomplished. Lest you be discouraged, church, the tomb is still empty and our king is still enthroned. So yes, we, we need godly civil magistrates, people who are, who are going to rule in the fear of God. We need, we need godly individuals. We need godly husbands and fathers and wives and mothers. We need godly children to be taught this stuff. We need godly churches who have, have no shame in naming the name of Christ in a culture that refuses to care what you have to think and care what you have to say. But make no mistake, the battle is over. It's done. You realize that, right? When Jesus said, it is finished, it is finished. 
Deuteronomy 20, verse 4. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the, and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Lest you feel discouraged, 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. For the church for far too long has acted like Christ wasn't raised from the dead. Our view of history has been tainted by the newspapers instead of being shaped by the scriptures. God has sent his son. Christ came. He died. He was risen. Christ will come again. And we must be confident in that confession lest we be found to be hypocrites who say one thing and do another. So our task is the task of of national covenanting, call it. We are charged with the Great Commission, right? To make disciples of all nations, to baptize them, to teach them God's law word. We want the nations to covenant with God, to, to, to repent and turn to him like Nineveh repented and turned to him. But we have become fickle and fearful instead of bold and confident. And our nation right now is divided. Half of the U.S. was excited about Donald Trump's win. Half was frustrated by it. Had the outcome been in Clinton's favor, the emotions would be switched. But the problem in all of this is that everyone is still looking for a political savior. Electing someone who holds to your particular beliefs isn't going to cut it. We want bottom-up change in our nation. Abortion won't end until the hearts of people are changed. And sure, we we should be electing godly leaders who love Christ and want to do his perfect will. But the only way that our nation is discipled for Christ is from bottom-up change to occur. Look what happened in Nineveh. The people repented before the king did. Do you notice that? That's not not a small observation. Top-down repentance doesn't work. You can't force someone into conversion, right? It just can't be done. Faith comes by hearing. The reason corruption at the top happens is because corruption at the top is meant, is is a judgment meant to awaken those at the bottom. Can you imagine if people were protesting the slaughter of infants in the womb like they are their political candidate or sports team? But alas, that won't happen until revival happens. And part of the story Jonah gives us, he gives us some clarity on how that happens. How does revival happen? This is how we buy back time. This is how we demonstrate God's victory. Let me tell you, church, it starts with you. It starts with me. It starts with us. Step one, the faithful preaching and faithful hearing of the Bible. If we won't teach the Bible and make it known in our churches, in our families, in our cultures, revival will never happen. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We must have faithful pastors preaching the word and faithful congregants hearing the word. Jonah preached and proclaimed and the people gave it a listen. Christians, we must be eating our Bibles, but alas, too many of us are eating other things. Step two, a belief in God. No one is going to believe the gospel message if we aren't faithful in preaching it, but no one can be saved by the gospel message until they actually believe it. The hardening of people's hearts in our nation is a judgment from God. When the gospel fountain dries, people get angry. 
But alas, if revival is in fact going to occur, we need nominal Christians to knock it off and genuinely believe God. And we also need unchurched unbelievers to believe him too. Number three, action. Notice what the people in the king of Nineveh did. He even made a decree, a statue. This is what y'all need to do. Don't eat anything. Don't even let your dog eat. That's how serious we are about this. We are fasting, people. So they put on sackcloth. They repented with ashes. They visibly demonstrated their repentance. If a man is unwilling to take up his cross, he simply is unwilling to be saved. And a belief in God requires action. For faith without works is what? Dead. Step four, turning from specific sin. This is all in Jonah 3. The text says in verse 8 that their sin was their evil way and the violence that is in their hands. If revival is going to occur, the gospel must be preached. If revival is going to occur, faith must be placed in Christ and in Christ alone. If revival is going to happen, there must be a visible break with darkness and evil. If revival is going to occur, there must be a turning away from sin. Those are the steps. And it starts with you and it starts with me. Our big idea again. God demonstrates his control over history by his victory in history through his assembled saints, the church. Nineveh's repentance was a victory that demonstrated God's sovereignty in history. None of you were converted because you thought you were amazing, right? None of you stroll in here and think, man, I'm so awesome. Like, I'm at church because I'm amazing. And I follow Jesus I'm clever. I'm great looking, right? I dress perfectly. God must be pleased with... None of you did that. None of you you did it. You came to Christ because your heart was broken. So we want more of this. And with whom... The question is, with whom does God demonstrate his victory? The answer, the church. The church, not the state, is the bride of Christ. We are Christ's body and we are his most prized possession. Which means that if anything is going to change for the future, so we're talking about time, right? Future. If anything's going to change for the future, if the inheritance that is God's people on God's earth is going to be obtained, then it is the church who must repent and believe the gospel. Revival in the world will never happen if there isn't a gospel wakefulness in the church. And I've been doing a lot of research lately about the local church and in, in, in different ways and, and, and really how things are changing inside of the church as well as outside and the culture, which is very shift, shifting very rapidly. Another theological study came out from Ligonier Ministries not too long ago, and they interviewed various church-going evangelicals. They interviewed them about basic doctrinal things, okay? And it's jaw-dropping how bad it is. It's bad. To give you just one example, okay, Nearly 50%, nearly half of the evangelical Christians who go to church with their Bible, right, do their thing. Nearly half of them interviewed said that they somewhat agree or agree with this statement. I can't. I can't even. Here's the statement. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Half! Amazing. Amazing. I mean, it gets worse. Oh, 
maybe you shouldn't read it. Gave me an aneurysm for a minute. If you Google state of theology, I think it's actually stateoftheology.com. You can look and, and you can read it. But my reason for bringing that even up is because, listen, the world is our inheritance. What did Jesus say? The meek shall inherit what? The earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. The world, not some disembodied, cloud-floating experience where naked baby angels wait on you. The earth. And, And Jesus bought this place, and it belongs to us. You know what that means? Like, we have home field advantage. We're not away. We're home. I want to I close with a word of encouragement. You're on the winning team. The inheritance, the inheritance is ours. Okay? The victory of the church in history, as we proclaim the gospel, that victory is secured. It's tied to the victory of Christ and his defeat of Satan, sin, and death. Okay? When you place your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you are now in Christ. You are tied to him. He is your, you are a son of God now. And you are now, Paul says in Ephesians, seated with him in the heavenly places. You have access to the throne because Jesus came. Which means that you shouldn't mope around walking aimlessly in your life with no purpose, no guidance, no mission, no sense of urgency. It's over. The, bat, like the tomb is empty. You get that. It's empty. We're just telling everybody that the war is over. That's the gospel, right? <laughs> Turn to Jesus. He's king. The war is over. Resistance is futile. So time is on our side because God is faithful, Exodus says, to 10,000 generations. His mission to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, let me tell you something, it's going according to plan. Okay? It's going according to plan. So fret not, church. Know that your labor is not in vain. Know that your efforts do not go unnoticed from the throne room. We shall be victorious because we are. So what do we do? we recover a thorough understanding and application of the law and the gospel of God. We repent of our sins. We gather in biblical churches. We hear the word of God unashamedly preached. We partake of the Lord's Supper and we cry out to God for deliverance and revival. And guess what? God will be pleased to listen. He will. Let's pray. Father, we, we realize that on one, that on one level, <laughs> we are unable to approach you because we have sinned against you, maybe even this morning. But even still, on another level, we are told that we can come happily to your throne because Jesus has made a way for us. Father, you, has, you have established your kingdom. You have given your saints a unique calling You have called us to be salt and light in a world that seems to be quite dark, and yet our inheritance is found in you. So if it pleases you, would you grant us an immeasurable portion of your spirit-empowering glory? Would you use us to be a faithful witness? Surely you use John the Baptist as a voice crying in the wilderness. Would you do the same for us? 
Heavenly Father, grant peace to your saints this day. I know this series has been heavy, and yet we totally and utterly rely on you. Spirit, would you take the word that has been proclaimed and stuff it down in our souls so that we may be emboldened to act for your kingdom. It's in the name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen.